Good morning. How you guys doing? Good. Hey, if you've got a, a physical Bible, go ahead and take it out and uh, flip over to Matthew chapter 26. We're continuing on as we just like walk through the book of Matthew and we're kind of growing as we get closer to Easter to finishing up the book. And so we're excited for doing that. Today we're going to be in chapter 26 looking at verses 36 through, um, yeah, uh, what is it, 56? And so we'll be there. Or they'll be up on the screen too if you didn't bring a Bible, which is fine. So uh, I could drive... Uh, the drive from my house in Clearwater to Clearwater Beach with my eyes closed. I've, I've done that drive hundreds of times. I grew up in Clearwater area, and we just went to the beach every weekend. That's just what we did. And I, I mean, I'm telling you, I could pull out of my high house and where my parents live right now, and I could drive it with my eyes closed. It was take a left out of the neighborhood, go down to Gulf to Bay, take a right. Uh, I'm on Gulf to Bay, terrible traffic. You'll be there for like 30 minutes. A lot of bad drivers in Clearwater, too. Uh, keep going. There's a Taco Bell on your right. Keep going past that. I've been there a bunch. Uh, on the left, there's this place called Dairy Curl. It's old school. Little ice cream shack. It's a good place. It's been there forever. Good soft serve if you want. Little soft serve. Go grab that. Uh, you keep going. Uh, you're going to want to stay in the left lane because the right lane gets a little busy, but you just keep going down. You'll pass the Scientologist. You definitely want to keep going past that. <laughs> you're going to hit the bridge. You're going to go over the bridge, again, stay in the left lane because the right lane likes to turn right as you get closer to the beach, and then you'll hit the roundabout. Then you want to get in the right lane. Go take a right at the roundabout because, uh, yeah, you, left is where all, like, the tourist people go. Go right. That's North Beach, Clearwater, down Mandalay. You're going to keep going down there, and then you're going to go past some houses, and then you'll find, like, some public parking that you can park there, and that is where me and my wife would go all the time. This was a familiar place to us, okay? We, as you can tell, like, I'm, I've just done it hundreds of times, and it was a place of, like, joy, and we loved going to this specific spot in Clearwater Beach, and honestly, it was, like, where me and my wife really fell in love was just, like, in Florida. It was on a spring break trip from college, our uh, sophomore year, and it's, like, this is where we began to, like, really just, like, fall in love with one another, and then we got married after college and moved back down to Clearwater and we just would go there all the time. And we park in our normal spot. I remember this drive. Park in our normal spot. We go to our normal place. We pull out our normal blanket. This is a familiar place. And my wife begins to weep. And so do I. This is a place that we've gone for joy, for fun, for rest so many times. But this time it's, it's not a place of joy. Rewind 30 minutes. And we're at a wedding rehearsal for my cousin. And it's a great, it's a party, it's a celebration. We're having a great time. And we line up to take a picture of everyone. And right before they say one, two, three, my, my other cousin jumps in front of everyone and says, guess what? We're pregnant again. And everybody goes, yay! Except my wife, who I think is right next to me, is like clinching my hand, squeezing. She's got a smile on her face, but it's one of those smiles that's not actually a real smile. It's, it's fake. It's just trying to keep an okay front because though everyone is celebrating and this is good news, it doesn't sit on good news to a heart that has been processing why we haven't been able to get pregnant for two years plus. And we get in the car and she begins to cry. And I just, I instantly was like, we're just going to go to the place that I always go. We'll go to the place that we know really well, a place
place that I call home. We go to Clearwater Beach. We sit in our normal spot. But this time it's not a place of joy, a place of pain, a place of processing, a place where we feel pressed. We're wrestling with God, wondering what's going on. And we see in this passage, in chapter 26, Jesus goes to a place with his friend, his closest friends, to a place that he's been hundreds of times, a place that he's really familiar with, a place that is normally a place of intimacy and joy, a place of prayer, but now we see this place in chapter 26 become a place of pain, a place of pressing, processing, a place of suffering. We read in verse 36 where Jesus is. Let's, let's take a look. We read verse 36. It says this, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he told his disciples, Sit here while I go over there, go over there and pray. Gethsemane. Gethsemane is this, this garden outside the city. And uh, Jesus would often retreat to this little garden. It's this hillside garden full of olive trees. And it's called Gethsemane, the place, literally, place of pressing, because at this, where these olive trees were located, they would pick olives. And at this location, they wouldn't just pick the olives, they would then take the olives and press them into olive oil. So it was underneath where they would actually just pick them right away, and then they would take these olives, put them on this grindstone thing, and they would roll this massive stone, and it would crush them into a pulp. And then they would take this pulp and put them in these like basket things, and then they would put it under this press where they would get pressed three times with crushing weight, and from the olives would produce oil. And it's fitting that Jesus would go to this place at this hour because he himself is about to be pressed under a heavy weight and pressure. And we are going to see out of Jesus' life what comes out in this place of pressing, this place of prayer, this place of desperation, and after this joyous celebration of the Passover, after they just enjoyed this meal and party, celebrating with God what God has done, Jesus knows something what no one else knows and feels what no one else feels. And he's here, and you can almost picture as they're walking into the garden with the moon shining down, and it's quiet, it's late, and we see Jesus. And we see the scene quickly begin to change from a party into a place of pressing. Read with me again in verse 36, down to 37, actually. Look at 37. Jesus is in the garden. He says, sit here while I go pray. And then in verse 37, taking along Peter and two sons of Zebedee, this is like his closest inner circle. These are his closest friends. It says, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Sorrowful. He began to be sad. Again, to feel this as he's walking with his friends in the garden, he feels sad. And it says trouble. This word trouble just means like a heavy weight is over Jesus, pressing him down. Another way that you could describe what Jesus is going through, this pressing, this weight, is depression. Jesus is being depressed. That's literally what the word means, depressed. There's this heavy weight that is just crushing him. That's how he feels, sad and pressed down, weighty. And this is immediately what we learn. And just as an observation, Jesus feels feelings. Some of you girls are shocked because you didn't know guys could feel feelings. 
And some of you guys are probably shocked because you didn't know it was okay to feel feelings. You didn't, maybe some of you guys didn't even know you had feelings. <laughs> here's, here's another shocker. Jesus feels feelings, but not only does he feel feelings, this is really interesting to me, I think, he talks about them. Some of you grow up like nudging the guy next to you, just talk about your feelings. <laughs> this is Jesus feeling them, and now he's talking about them. Look at verse 38. He said to them, notice, he's not keeping this inside now. He feels a certain way. Now he's telling them. Verse 38, he said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Man, what a beautiful picture that we get in this garden scene of, of the humanity of Jesus. Jesus feeling things that humanity felt because he was made flesh. The eternal son of God was made flesh. He was made into human likeness and form. And he felt what you felt. And so we are going to walk with Jesus in this garden scene. And what I want us to do is through this pressing of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, I want us to just take away four lessons that I think that we can learn from this pressing of Jesus in the garden. But right off the bat, I just want to tell you this. If you are going through suffering, who felt suffering, if you've gone through a hard time, Hebrews describes it like this. You have a high priest who can empathize, who can sympathize with your suffering because he himself suffered. So no one in the room may know what you're going through right now. But Jesus does because he has felt what you're going through right now. And so I, I want us to just walk, look at Jesus in the garden, in this scene, and take away four lessons. And the first one we've kind of already seen, but I think we need to learn this. Number one, number one, we need to process real feelings. Number one, we need to process real feelings. Verse 38, he said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Deeply grieved. That, that can be summarized as like, I am swallowed up in grief. Grief has come and swallowed me up and I can't get out of it. Notice Jesus felt a certain way, and now he's saying, hey, I, this is the real reality of the situation. I'm deeply grieved. Notice what Jesus doesn't do, which I think is interesting. He doesn't ignore his feelings, and he doesn't bottle up his feelings. As, as Jesus is overcome with this human emotion, being 100% human, but also 100% God, he's feeling something, and notice, man, his disciples as they're looking at him, maybe gazing at him, they're like, Jesus, you okay, bro? And he's like, doing fine. You know, just busy, just under some pressure, that's all. But I'm doing good, fine, good. God is good all the time, amen, praise the Lord. We're good, let's keep, no. Jesus is, is, is feeling something in his humanity, and now he's, he's, process, he's, he's even just telling them what's happening. He in himself is processing real feelings. He sees the severity of it. He sees and he names the thing that he's going through. I, like, I love this quote by Dan Allender, who is uh, you know, a, a counselor, um, psychiatrist out in, uh, out in Seattle. He's a, a follower of Jesus. He says this, ignoring our emotions is turning back on reality, turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality, and reality is where we meet God. Emotions are the language of the soul. They are the cry that gives the heart a voice. However, we often turn a deaf ear 
through emotional denial, distortion, or disengagement. We strain out of anything disturbing in order to gain a tenuous control of our inner world. We are frightened and ashamed of what leaks out in, or leaks into our consciousness. In neglecting our intense emotions, we are false to ourselves and lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. And I love this last line. We forget that change comes through brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. Jesus does not lie to himself here. He is feeling something, and he is brutally honest with what he's feeling. He does not lie about his emotions, but also know this. Jesus doesn't let his emotions lie. He feels something, and therefore he is led to then do something. And this is true, honestly, of all of us. We feel certain things. We're humans. You feel things. And then you are, from your feelings, are then led to do something else. The problem with this is oftentimes in our feelings, we are led to do the wrong thing. We feel pain and we just want to alleviate it. So rather than process maybe where the pain is coming from internally, we either run from it or we try to medicate what this feeling is. When you're feeling stressed, when you're feeling overwhelmed, when you're feeling maybe like Jesus, sorrowful, overwhelmed by grief, or like there's a big weight on you, what do you do? Often, some of us, when we're stressed, we turn to video games, turn to TikTok, turn to Instagram, anything to just like, I'm stressed, and I just want to like not feel stressed, so I'm just going to numb my senses. I want to silence the noise in my heart by filling it with more noise. Let me just, let me just scroll for hours. I just want to process this. Guys, I found myself doing this this Saturday, yesterday. As I'm like processing things in my life, I felt kind of overwhelmed. And it wasn't even like I intentionally did. I just found myself filling my mind with noise to not have to deal with this pain. And it usually comes in the form of like my wife being like, hey, maybe put your phone away for a little bit, you know? I'm like, oh gosh, I didn't even, I didn't even know this. And I'm just running away from actually what I'm feeling. Our first instinct is often not to go deeper into it, but to, to run from it. But Jesus shows us something here. Jesus shows us that it's important to take stock of your actual feelings. I believe that. This is how I am feeling. I am deeply grieved. It's important to take stock of your real emotions, but just as important of learning to take, just as important as learning to take them to the right place. It's important to take stock of how you're feeling, but maybe it's more important to, to take them to the right place. Jesus shares his feelings with his friends, but notice he doesn't even ask them to help. And say, hey, can we just talk about this for a little bit? I'm feeling deeply grieved. Can you help me? He doesn't even spend time processing. What does Jesus do with the emotions that he's feeling? He's deeply grieved. He's sorrowful. So what does he do? Verse 39 tells us. Look at this, verse 39. Going a little further with his friends. It says, stay awake with me and pray. Then it says, going a little further, he fell face down and prayed, my father. Which actually, I think, shows us the second lesson that we learn from Jesus. He processes real emotions, but then he does this. He prays real prayers. Jesus' first response to his feelings, to fall face down and begin to cry out to his father. cries out, Father, Abba. This is like intimate language. This is like, Papa. 
I'm, I'm overwhelmed, stressed. Help. Jesus doesn't eat his feelings. He doesn't drink his feelings. He doesn't run from his feelings. He runs to God with his feelings. I heard a commentator say this. Jesus puts his heart, his pain, his hopes, and his horrid anticipation of agony in utterly trustworthy hands. Psalm 62, 8 says this. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is our refuge. Did you hear that? Trust in him. Psalm 62, 8. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is our refuge. What does this psalm call us to do? To pour out our heart. What's in your heart? Whatever's in your heart. What was in Jesus' heart? Grief, pain, suffering, sorrow. And he pours it out to God. He, he goes before God and he prays. He doesn't do this like mumbo jumbo Christian prayer that we always follow into of like, oh yeah, dear God, just man, thank you for this day. Thank you for this afternoon. Man, God, if you're just like there and like, I just maybe a little bit of like, I'm going through some stuff right now, but Lord, in your goodness and you're just so good to me, like just maybe if you just, I'm feeling a little something, but God, you're like, no, he doesn't just like jump. He goes, my father. Help. He runs straight to God and prays real prayers. And here's what's in Jesus' heart. Here's the prayer that he's praying. Here's what's honestly in Jesus' heart right now. Verse 39. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What came out of Jesus' heart when he's in this moment of grief? What is Jesus' desire? He says, Lord, let this cup pass. Pass from me if it is possible. Jesus knows what is ahead in the next couple hours. Pain, suffering. He will be betrayed by his friends. He will be abandoned. He will be whipped. He will be beaten. He will be placed on a cross to die. And he is grieving this. Not, it's not just the suffering that he's, he's anticipating. What he's truly grieving, what he's truly desiring to avoid is complete and utter separation from God the Father. Because he will stand and take the sins of the world, God will be rejected. Jesus will be rejected from God so that those who look at him could have forgiveness, could be accepted before God. But in a moment, Jesus will be ripped away for the first time ever from the presence of God. He's been in eternity past present with God, made flesh, walking with God through the Spirit, and now God will remove his presence from Jesus. And all sin and shame will be placed upon him. And he's looking at that, and he is grieved. Jesus is feeling that. And honestly, he comes before God and says, if possible, let this cup pass from me. This is a real prayer. This is an honest prayer. And I think it actually honors God when we have honest prayers. However raw, however unrefined, because it shows that we trust him. I don't think God was dishonored by this prayer of Jesus. I bet he was honored as Jesus is coming before him, spilling his heart out like Psalms does. And in fact, the entire book of Psalms is just an honest prayer book of people going through hardship, pouring their 
their, their heart out for God. And Jesus, in this place of pressing, gives us permission to pray real, honest prayers before God, to take off the mask and to just pour out what is in our heart. God can handle it, okay? God can handle your honest prayers. We see in the garden Jesus feeling real emotions, processing it, praying real prayers, but then we see a turn, and I, and I feel like if we just stopped there, we would miss out on so much that we can learn from this passage. Because the place of pressing just doesn't teach us to process real emotions and pray real prayers. It teaches us to position ourselves for real submission. Number three, position ourselves for real submission. Look at verse 39. My father, if it is pass, possible, let this cup pass from me. But his prayer is not over. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. We actually see him pray this again. Look at verse 40. Let's keep going. Then he came to his disciples after praying this prayer, and he found them sleeping. He asked Peter, so you couldn't stay up with me for an hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So he gives a command here. We don't have time to unpack this too much, but like he's telling Peter, pray so that you don't enter into temptation because Peter is going to be tempted in just mere minutes. Prayer is a place of preparation. Once you, pr you pray, and this will actually keep you from temptation. That's what Jesus tells Peter. Pray so you don't enter into temptation, Peter. Peter doesn't, but Jesus walks away. Verse 42, again, a second time. He went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and his friends, was sleep, his friends were sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. And after leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time saying the, the same thing once more. Do you notice how many times Jesus prays? How many times? Three times. Kind of cool. The, in the olive press, they would press it three times. The first press would release the most purest olive oil. The second time, they would use it, or, and they would take that oil and give it up to God. And then the second, this is just a fun fact, not my notes. The second time, they would press olive oil. Then they would use it for food and for medicine and ointment. The third time, they would use it for things like candles. Uh, not candles, lamps. Candles don't have olive oil. They would use it for lamps. Jesus, like in the place that he's at, like the present, would be pressed three times, pouring his heart out. And sometimes we think that like, yeah, we've, we're good and we've processed grief and after one, praying one time, oh yeah, I've already prayed about that. Jesus shows us that, we, that prayer is a continual posture that we constantly run into the Father's presence. Shows us that our, sometimes our prayers are not answered. And we keep running back to God. God, if possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. He comes back again on his knees. God, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Third time, God, please take this cup from me. But if not, not my will, but yours be done. Was God not listening? Did Jesus not have faith? Was that why his answers or his prayers weren't being answered in this moment? God, were you asleep like my friends? Often I think we find ourselves in a place of pressing. 
maybe a familiar place that you've been time and time again for us is out on the beach crying out to God. And I don't, I don't know how many times we prayed in that three-ish year span, praying that God would give us a child. And some of you have prayed a lot longer for things that have honestly probably been harder than what I've gone through. If you prayed, God, take this addiction away from me. God, help remove this bitterness in my heart. God, restore this relationship. God, I don't want to be single anymore. God, heal my mom. God, help me with my depression. And whatever this cup is that is in front of you that you're bearing, you're just praying that God would take it away from you. And the truth is, I, I may not know why God is not answering your prayer or relieving you of this prayer. But I do know what Jesus teaches us here is often prayer isn't a way to get something out of God, but rather prayer is God's way to get something into you. Prayer isn't a way to get something out of God like a vending machine, but rather it is God's way of getting something into you. And what is God, the Father, even pressing, getting into Jesus as he is constantly running back to him, running into this rock. God, please remove this. Please remove this. Please remove this. And God says, no. Jesus' strongest desire, his strongest will in his human DNA possible is not to die, not to be ripped, not to be suffered. And yet, his strongest will is being crushed by his deepest will, which is to obey and honor the Father. And so his will is now being crushed and formed into the will of the Father in perfect harmony. Jesus had to be pressed. In Jesus, he was being prepared. He was being pressed for something that is awaiting him in a matter of mere minutes and hours and he will begin his last day on earth before the cross. Which leads us, I think, to our maybe most important lesson that we learn from the place of pressing in the garden. Yeah, we learn how to process real feelings, and we learn that, man, Jesus prayed real prayers, and yeah, we even posture ourselves in our prayer. We posture ourselves in a place of submission to God, not my will but yours, but I think the last thing that we learn in the place of pressing is to trust the plan of real salvation. To trust the plan of real salvation. Look at verse 45. After Jesus is done praying, after he's been pressed, submitted to the Father's will, then he came, verse 45, then he came to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? See, the time is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. You see Jesus now, as he's been pressed, is now fully poised. He is no longer, looks like he's in pain. and so, he's, He is poised and ready, aligned with the will of the Father. And he says this, see, the time is near. The time. We've heard this in the gospel if we've been reading. Maybe you've heard this as reading. Jesus is like, my time has not yet come. Have you read that? 
My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Well, now we see the final moments of Jesus where he's like, the time is near. Everything that my whole life has been building up to, everything that the scriptures have been pointing to from the very beginning when it talked about ridding the world from evil and pain and suffering and God restoring the world and that God had a plan, now that time has come. The plan is here. The waiting is over. But he knew what the kingdom coming meant. Even if those around him had no idea, Jesus knew the kingdom coming had to come through a cross. He knew that he had to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. And so he says, get up, let's go. My betrayer is near. But those around him had no idea what he was talking about. They could not comprehend this type of kingdom. This is not in their category of what Jesus came to do. They're like, no, you've come to be a king and to take over and rule like we think. They had no idea. Even though Jesus was telling them they couldn't get it through their skull that the kingdom might look different than what they thought it looked like. They didn't know the plan of real salvation. Look how they responded to, to look at how Jesus or look at how Jesus' friends responded to this plan unfolding. Okay, look at verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. A large mob with swords and clubs was with him. From the, the chief priests and the elders of the people, his betrayer had given them a sign. This is Judas, the one I kiss, he's the one. Arrest him. So immediately they went up to Jesus and said, or so immediately he went up to Jesus, this is Judas, and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Now, Jesus had revealed earlier that he knew who was going to betray them. And now we see finally who it is. It's Judas. Judas did not, did not believe that Jesus was the real plan of salvation. Judas' name means praise. And Judas even shows affection to Jesus with a kiss which should be a warning for all of us that you can praise Jesus with your mouth and hate him in your heart. That you can show outward affection for Jesus and the community of Jesus and yet in your heart all there is is actually deception. That you never believed that Jesus was actually who he says he was. That he actually is the real plan of salvation. And it's not just Judas who doesn't believe that, that Jesus and the way of Jesus and his, his way of the kingdom is actually the true plan of salvation. His closest friends don't even believe it. Look at this, verse 51. At that moment, this is Peter. So at that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand, drew his sword, and he struck the high priest servant and cut off his ear. Okay, homeboy Peter over here. He sees what's going down. And he doesn't like it. Jesus getting arrested. What's going on here? This isn't the plan. This isn't how it's supposed to work. Jesus is supposed to come, conquer like the, the Roman rule of the area. It's supposed to like lead us into a new, like Israel. Like, man, we're going to be great. He's going to bring his kingdom. I'm going to sit next to him to the right. Like, it's going to be great. And Peter sees all of his ideas of the kingdom begin to crumble down. And Jesus is being betrayed and arrested. And he's going, what's going on? This isn't, this isn't how it's supposed to work. And so what does he do? He takes matters into his own hands, literally takes out a sword and yaks a dude's ear off. 
ear falls to the ground. She's looking at us. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and how does Jesus respond to Peter? Is Jesus like, oh, thanks, Peter. Close one. Thanks for cutting that dude's ear off. We're good to go now. Now we can move on. No, look at verse 52. This is how Jesus responds to that. Then Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place. Because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Jesus tells Peter that the way of the kingdom, the way of Jesus, and the plan of salvation will not come through swords. And it will not come by a conquering force. It will conquer. The kingdom will come and it will conquer evil. But it will come through a suffering servant who sacrificially gives up his life. What they could not understand, Judas and his closest friends, was what was happening before their eyes. Jesus being betrayed, Jesus being arrested, and Jesus being prepared to die. What they saw as out of control, what they couldn't understand was actually God in control. What they thought was like the plan going wrong was actually the plan all along, okay? This was God unfolding his plan. Look at, what verse, look at verse 53. This is what Jesus says. Put your sword away. Do you not think that I cannot call on my father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus is like, I can do it this way if I wanted to. I could wipe all these people out. But look at 54. How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way. If I wanted to call angels, I could. But this, this is what he's telling Peter. This is how it's supposed to be. This is the way that the kingdom comes to earth. Not through swords, but through suffering. Can I just like pause here and say this is the way it must happen this is the only way to salvation for sinners to have relationship with a holy god it is impossible any other way except through the cross this is the way it had to happen don't you think if there was another way for God to save humanity without the sacrifice of his own son, don't you think logically like he just would have? And Jesus is going, is there any other way possible? And God says, no. This is the way a holy, just God can redeem and reconcile sinners. It's through the sacrifice of a perfect, spotless lamb in their place. This is the way it must happen. There are so many gospels right now in the world, but there is only one true gospel. There are so many gospels saying, this is what will bring you life. This is what will bring you life. Through, man, progressivism, through politics, through even just like, man, social justice and good. This is the way. This is how we're going to make everything right. And God says, no, this is the only way. This is the way it must happen. Through my son dying for your sin. 
This is the way it must happen. And Jesus turns, look at this, and we'll close. Verse 55, Jesus turns to those arresting him, and he says, at that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I was a criminal to capture me? Every day I used to sit teaching in the temple, and you didn't arrest me. But look at this, verse 56 again. But all this has happened, everything that's happening, so that the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. And then look at what happens. Jesus says, this is, this is the way. This is, this is what it was supposed to happen. I was supposed to be turned over into the hands of sinners. And look at what happens right here. Then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. Do you notice Jesus when he was met with the real plan of God as he is headed to the cross, he runs to God. And when the disciples are faced with the reality of the situation, they run. Didn't make sense to them. But this was the way that scripture always pointed to how the kingdom would come. It would come through a cross. And they were wondering, how could God how could God bring his kingdom through a cross? And Jesus says, this is the way it must happen. All scripture is pointed to this. This is the only way for salvation, was for me to be betrayed, handed over to sinners, crucified on a cross, buried in a tomb. And the disciples would leave this moment, and they wouldn't talk to Jesus again until he would raise again three days later after his death. But man, those three days, where it probably looks like God is in least control, when in fact, is the greatest evidence that God has been in control of everything, all the time. Often I think we can look at the, the world around us, and often us find our places in places of pressing, maybe like Jesus, suffering, feeling real feelings, praying real prayers, and we are confused, and it looks chaotic. Maybe you feel like the disciples, and things are not the way that they should be, and we wonder, how could God ever be in control of this? God, are you even in control? It looks like chaos. How could life come from death? How could a kingdom come from a cross? I was feeling, uh, uh, even just as I'm reading this text uh, this weekend, I mean, I was feeling in myself, just feeling like pressed. And I was like, I, I guess I got to apply it for myself. And so I was like, I guess I got to go process this. And I went on a walk for like two hours, just walking in silence, processing what I was feeling, trying to pray honestly to God, even submitting to, okay, God, what does this mean? And, and I, I'm walking and I'm, I'm wrestling with this and even wondering how God is in control of the chaotic things that I'm, I'm seeing and how could he bring goodness out of what looked like gore and life out of death. And uh, I was in San Flasco Park. You guys ever walk to San Flasco Park? Just walking, just on the trail, just for hours by myself. And thunderstorm ended up coming right on top of me, but that's another story. Uh, and I got to this clearing out of the trees and it was lifeless. It was a place that had been scorched by fire. Death is what marked this part of the path. It looked like there was no life in this area. I'm like, man, what happened? Chaos. 
So they uncontrolled fire. And you see that there was actually a sign here that was like, hey, if you were wondering, this was a controlled fire. We burnt this on purpose. And it looked lifeless. It looked dead. And I was going, oh, how, could, how could this ever recover? The truth is, they control the fire and they burn it on purpose so that it'll actually purify the force. And then from it, will actually, new life will come up in a matter of time. And it'll be more life than you've ever seen. So I took this picture as I was, oh, is the picture already up there? It's just scorched earth. It looks lifeless. It looks, it looks dead. But as you get closer, you can, see, you can see coming up from the ground, it's life, new life, restored life. The disciples would have looked at the cross and they would have said, how could the kingdom ever come through a cross? And God looks and says, how could the kingdom come without the cross? Because from death, I will actually bring life. In Jesus' death, in your place, I will provide spiritual life for you. And so when we look at the world and it looks like chaos and it looks like it's out of control, know this. Look back to the cross. When it looks like God is in least control, know this. God is in control and can bring life even out of lifeless situations. The garden shows us and when we should process real feelings, we should go to God praying real prayers. We should position ourselves in humble submission, and we should ultimately trust his plan of salvation, knowing that he can bring life out of the things that look lifeless. Let's pray. <clears throat> yeah, Father, we, uh, we even admit right now, God, as we're praying to you, that we are humans <laughs> and that we need to come to you with our problems, with our feelings. God, and we, we pour out our hearts right now, whatever is in them, whether it's unrefined, raw, or we just pour out our hearts to you. And God, we do pray for the things that we are suffering with, God, that you would remove them. But ultimately, we put ourselves in a place of submission, knowing, God, that you are in control. And we pray, not our will, but your will be done. God, and we trust in your plan of salvation, that the kingdom always came through a cross. Kingdom came through suffering. His life in this life, we will have suffering. That is what Jesus promised us. But he also promised us, in him we will have life and life eternal. So God, we look to the cross and we see the place that maybe looked like gore and we see glory because we see a sinless Savior who died to save our sin. And what looks like death is actually life for all of us. So we cling to you. We cling to the cross. We see the hope. And we trust you.